You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Clap, 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 clap your hands and stomp your feet. You're listening. You're listening to the Clap Your Hands Podcast. Hosted by Elliot Shore Parks and Kyle Newbeck. Here they come. What's going on, everybody? This is the Clap Your Hands Podcast, brought to you by Odyssey Sports, brought to you by Sports Radio 94 WIP. Once again, brought to you by the nice five-star reviews we're getting, Kyle. Since the last <laughs> time we talked, the number two has been big. The Sixers got two wins, and we got two more five-star reviews. So it was very nice to start my day opening up the app, seeing those reviews. Thank you to everybody that's listening on the Odyssey app, people that are leaving reviews. The reality is the Sixers team's playing really well, and I think we're at the beginning of what could end up being a special run, man, especially when you look at the fact that coming off that Milwaukee game, you know, we kind of talked about these next two games as who knows what the effort's going to be, that type of stuff. They come out and they go 2-0. and yeah, and we, we were saying I think one and one would have been a successful split there to end the road trip that they had kind of bought themselves a little bit of goodwill. Now, I say that, and you and I know full well that if they had lost one or both of these games, that everyone would be trying to fire Doc and you know yeah. throw the whole team out and all that. But look, I, I think I know we said we don't believe in schedule losses and all that, but the fact that they played three games in four nights two separate times on the same road trip. Like Milwaukee essentially acted as the pivot point where it was the third game in four nights at the front and back end of two different versions of that. Right. And to come out of both of those with, with wins and, and good performances is impressive because it's a situation where, I mean, first of all, you could look at just Joel Embiid specifically because just playing in a back-to-back it used to be a huge deal for him. And I know he didn't play in the, the front end against Miami before the Dallas game. Yeah, but last week. For, but for him to come out in, in Indiana and Minnesota, I almost forgot who they played last night. <laughs> my brain is not all there this morning. Um, for him to come out in Indiana and Minnesota and score just a metric ton of points. And in the Minnesota game specifically where he is in a matchup with Rudy Gobert, who I know he's having a down year this season, and I think he looks way worse than he has in the past. But for him to come out in the second half of back-to-back against a guy who's been considered, you know, this elite defender, three-time defensive player of the year, all this stuff, and just absolutely wipe the floor with him to the point that the the Timberwolves took Rudy Gobert and had him guard P.J. Tucker (laughs) instead of defending Joel in that game. Like, that to me is the level that we know Joel can get to. And is probably the reason we end up being disappointed with Joel from time to time, because I see that game and I see 
Joel control that game on both sides of the ball, right? Scores 39 points in three quarters. I'm not expecting him to do that every night, but the defensive effort on the other end, the the captaining of the team and the effort he put in to get stops, that bleeds into everything else. And that inspires these guys where, you know, a lot of times people watch this team, they get out to a big lead and it's, well, how are they going to give this back? It's going to be a 15-point game that turns into a five-point game that turns into a crunch time struggle. And that never happened last night because the level that they played at on both ends just never really dipped. And, and so I thought that was a really mature performance. And I think, you know, the Dallas game, not great on the defensive end, as we've discussed already. But everything else about that road trip was awesome. And, and I think to come out of that four and one, and now you have a couple of days of rest, you get Portland and Washington, two winnable games while they're home. I mean, they're setting themselves up for a really great stretch run. Yeah, so you've said something a few times on the pod uh, about how Embiid is different this year, right? That you you just see it, you sense it. There's a there's just a difference about him, and I do think with Embiid, look, I'll put my hand up. I've been a certified Embiid hater at times. I have been the one <laughs> being like, get out the second round, can't build around a center. I mean, that has been me, and I still feel some of those things. But I think watching Embiid last night was, I don't know if it like was a turning point for me, but you used a word that I thought perfectly encapsulated what he did last night. I thought it was mature, professional domination. And I'm not saying Embiid has maturity issues. I think the work he puts in gets underrated, how hard he works considering the injuries. But I do think there's been times in Embiid's career where you turn the game on and you can just tell right away, all right, he doesn't have it tonight. Like it just, and last night felt like one of those games that would be that. Back to back, last game of a road trip a long road trip, right? Uh, has been playing really well. I thought last night, like when we build Embiid's MVP case at times, I think sometimes it goes with, you know, look at his stats and these things. I thought last night was a real strong case for why he deserves MVP. It wasn't a big time game. It wasn't, well, in terms of the matchup, obviously he ended up putting up really good numbers, but the game itself wasn't prime time. It wasn't against a team in the Eastern Conference. It wasn't any of those things. He came out and just carried that team. It was a lackluster game. It was not a lot of offense. It was low scoring. You know, the the players around him, Maxi ended up with a lot of points, but early on, he was really carrying the offense. I thought it was a real kind of step in, for my at least, on how I view Embiid, that he he can do that in that game and that night. I just thought it was, again mature, professional. It was a different version of Embiid, at least in my eyes, that we've seen over the last few years. Well, and on the like the motivational and maturity fronts, I think you could see in that game that Joel came into that game thinking, okay, we don't have James tonight. I don't really have the luxury of saying, yeah, I'm mm-hmm. going to half-ass it for two quarters or I'm going to lose focus or you know, just not stay in touch with the game plan, whatever it is, that I have to be dialed in from – the opening tip until I'm done playing, which ended up being the end of the third quarter because they they won so easily that he got to sit the fourth, which I wish we had more of those games where th- then we could say, like they come down the stretch and they're not asking Joel to play 40 minutes and there won't be these questions about, is he going to be healthy? Is James going to be healthy? Like this team should be capable of playing more games like this against lesser competition where they see it out and Joel and James and even... You know, guys like Tyrese can get yeah, some rest on the sideline. 
or earned what what does doc call it earned old uh, school load management that's is, it yeah old uh, school load, load management exactly that's what he calls it so look i think some of it is i think joel maybe deserves more benefit of the doubt when he's coasting a little bit in other games because he knows what it takes to be ready now in the playoffs like he's been in i know he hasn't gone to the conference finals and the finals but I think he knows what it requires on his body and his mind to go mm -hmm. deeper into the postseason to play in, you know, game sixes, game sevens and hostile environments. And so I do think there is part of his, you know, up and down effort that comes to or up and down focus, I should say. The effort is is always pretty good, but I think focus is probably a better way to put it. Um, I think that you see in a game last night where there's all the excuse in the world for him to to look tired or out of it or however you want to frame it. And he comes out and says, no, we need to end this road trip with a professional effort. And I'm going to be the guy leading that. Like that's an important step in his overall development. It's one of many reasons that I think he's just a different level of player than he was in the past. And to your point, I think that's a great example within a, a good road trip for him of why he deserves to win MVP or at least be considered for MVP. I don't know that end of the year based on where the standings are at and where the other guys cases are that he's going to ultimately win this award. But I do think he's starting to pile up more of a case when you look at the individual battles that he kicked Jokic's ass on national TV. He kicked Giannis's ass on actually has beaten Giannis two out of three games now is worth noting who Giannis is, if Jokic doesn't win, I, it seems like Giannis is probably the yeah. the second guy at this point. And it is noteworthy that Joel outplayed him and beat him in two out of three games so far. We'll see what happens the third time they play or the fourth time they play for the season, but potential third win for Joel at the end of the year this year. And then you add on top of that that his stats are undeniable. His impact on the floor is undeniable. The team is really good. This is not like... Jokic winning as a six seed last right. year and, and yeah, that whole 100%. controversy. So, I mean, he's got all the pillars of a great MVP case. I think the only thing that might come back to bite him in the end is games played. And if he plays every game the rest of the year, he'll still finish at 69 games played, which is a lot. It's not, you know, well, 75 or 70. What will Jokic and Giannis be at? Because Giannis missed a bunch. Or, well, Giannis will be right around there. I think Jokic is going to be ahead of both those guys unless Denver clinches the one seed and, and they settle Denver well, decides, he like, hey, we'll rest them. Well, he's a he's a stat patter, as we know. So, you know, in terms of... Uh, well, actually, speaking <laughs> of, Giannis, Giannis had the worst stat patter incident. I know. And good on the NBA for saying that rebound didn't count after the game. They ended up taking that away from him. So he didn't get the triple Great. double. All right. So let me, let me ask you this. Do you think that Embiid's greatness sometimes goes under discussed because we do this pod two to three times a week. We talk a lot about Harden. We talk a lot about Maxi, right? Doc, all these things. I feel like Embiid has kind of quietly just been going along, leading the league in points or right there with it with Luca. 39 points last night, carrying them to wins. And it doesn't feel like we ever have pods or from a, I can speak from a radio station perspective for WIP. You can speak obviously writing for Philly voice. Like it doesn't feel like there's a lot of moments anymore of, Oh my God, Embiid might be the best player in the NBA. 
But as, and again, somebody who started this year as an Embiid hater over the last month, I, I mean, how many players can you really point to that have played better than him? Do we sometimes look past his greatness because we're just so used to seeing these type of numbers? I don't think I do personally, but maybe I, do, I will yeah. say, uh, I will say this. He finished fourth in, in Eastern conference front court, all-star voting. Like if you want a, an idea of just like a perception based yeah. thing, the fans did not believe he was one of the top three players that deserved that spot in the all-star game. And I know that look, Giannis, Jason Tatum, Kevin Durant, all great players having great seasons. But I think you saw in the Celtics game, and I knew this prior to them playing that recent game, but it seems to be a bit of a an argument among some people. He is way better than Jason Tatum. Like, just they're not that close. It's a stab as to my basketball heart right players. It's a stab like, to my heart right there. Jason Tatum is a great player, top 10 player. I do think he's probably going to deserve MVP consideration this year. I don't think he's going to win. I think no, I think he's out. out. He's out of it at this point. But he's, you know, best player on one of the best teams, whatever, having a, a great season. But I think you can clearly see that Joel is a better basketball player than him. And I don't think it, it is that close. Mm-hmm. And so for Joel to be fourth behind him in, in fan voting, that that sort of makes the point for us, right? That Joel's greatness is not necessarily being received the same way. I know that there are parts of it that I think come down to aesthetics and style. Like it was, I follow a decent amount of Minnesota fans and writers. And I think the writers, like the media members are as in awe of Joel as, you know, most people are, but there's an undercurrent with Minnesota fans where Joel has kind of kicked Carl Anthony Towns' ass over the years. Yep. And early on, that was a, I actually, it was a, a controversial stance at the time that i said uh that joel had more upside than towns during towns's rookie year because i thought joel was a way better defender and there are a few hey, wait hold on you said you thought noah von lay had more upside or you said no Carly? okay no what do you know <laughs> how are you bringing noah von lay into this no when carl anthony towns was a rookie and obviously had a great rookie season right Joel was still on the come up at that time. And I made the claim that Joel had more upside than Towns simply because his defense was way better. And offensively, they were comparable, like different, but comparable. And I got a lot of shit from like a lot of Mm -hmm. national writer type guys or podcaster type people. And now it's not even fucking close. Like <laughs> and you wouldn't trade Joel for Towns and several first round picks. Yeah. They're not even close as players. And then they're like the Rudy Gobert thing. Rudy has gotten all the defensive love in the world. Like at his peak, yes, was a an elite defender, deserved at least consideration for defensive player of the year awards. Joel walked in there last night and made him look like he was, you know, a a G League player for most of that game. So, yeah, I mean, Rudy Gobert sucks, man. Like, sucks is maybe strong, but the fact so that So I won't go that far, but that is that might be the single worst NBA trade in history if you take into consideration what was given up, the value that Utah was able to get for some of the guys that they traded insane. at the deadline, and all these first-round picks that are and pick swaps that are coming to them in the future. That's... Going on, yeah. Kind of I mean, it's here. one of the worst. Again, if I was a general manager of that team 
and the owner was like, no, you have to do it. I would just quit. I would never in a million years have made well, that But trade. that was, it, he was just hired. That was like know, his big splash move. It, what's crazy is that it almost goes under discussed because it's Minnesota and it's Rudy Gobert. But to your point, it legitimately, like we talk so much about the Boston, uh, Brooklyn trade from back in the day with Billy King and all those picks they traded. This is a worse trade. I mean, this trade is unbelievably bad. So anyway, I lost the plot a little bit. But when you see Joel kicking Rudy's ass, there is a bit of, well, not a bit, a lot of sour grapes from Minnesota fans who, <laughs> like, Joel had a couple moments where he's maybe selling calls last night, right? Like, he does that. He knows that he gets hacked on every play, and so he tries to play some of them up. But by and large, that performance was just him killing Gobert by making threes and making elbow jumpers and shooting over him. It was not like, oh man, Joel is grifting it up and he's living right. at the free throw line. Like I think he, if you took every single one of his free throws away, which is a dumb way to think about it, he still would have <laughs> had 30 points last night. That and is yet wild. there are still a lot of Wolves fans who are like, oh, this is ridiculous. Look at all these calls he gets. And it's like, bro, he'd be kicking your team's ass regardless of whether he was taking free throws at all in this game. So, so I, I think that is part of it. It's like, I don't think a lot of people like the way he plays. And I think just like Harden at his peak, it's funny that they actually play together now because of that, that bleeds into how people analyze the team or analyze his play and his greatness. So the point is the point I'm making here is that there is part of it. That's less about people thinking that Joel is less than great and more about they hate the way that he gets there. And, and so I do think that colors the, the perception of him a little bit, but also mm -hmm. like, I, I just think that there's the element of he's got to get it done in the playoffs. Like I, I do get that part of it. I think with the fans, the reason that people are not as on board with this team is I think they probably should be based on the body of work and the level of play they've been at is that they don't trust them. Like, they're not going to be able to shake that. Although I do think I tweeted this out with the recap last night. They have beaten every team in the league now, except for two wow. Boston and Dallas. So the two teams they lost to recently, they're the only teams in the league. The Sixers haven't beaten yet this year, and they have a chance to beat both of those teams before the end of the season. So they could, in theory, they could end the year having beaten every single team in the league, which well I don't know how often that happens, but I feel like it doesn't happen super often. There's always like a, there's the one boogie team that you just can't right. beat for whatever reason. Like the Celtics struggled against the Orlando Magic all year this year. There are all kinds of weird quirks like that. Well, and that's the weird thing to me. Cause when I look at the Sixers team and we talk about on WIP, I talk about with my friends, there's no question. This team is really, really, really good. No question. Do they have flaws? Of course, every team has flaws, but this team is way better than teams in the past where I can't take the full leap is to your point. It just sucks. Boston is in their conference, right? Like if they always struggled against Phoenix and probably going to be their second round matchup. Yes, exactly. That's what I'm saying. So I think I would pick the Sixers to beat any other team in a seven game series. Milwaukee is debatable, but they just beat Milwaukee. So picking them wouldn't be crazy. I would pick them to beat almost every other team in the NBA. I just don't know if I can get there with Boston yet. But the good news for the Sixers is it looks like Boston is falling apart. So, so maybe 
it ends up where they pass Boston. I know you're a little more skeptical on this. Maybe they pass Boston. Maybe they get the home field home court advantage. It's just tough for me to picture them beating Boston still as good as they are. But to your point, that's just not something they can prove until it happens in the playoffs. So passing them would be tough. Although, I, I mean, Boston's recent run of play, they're only a game back in the loss column of Boston at this point. So I think it's more feasible than it looked, you know, even a week ago, week and a half right. ago. It, the problem is still that they have to, they have to beat them outright in the standings, which is tough, even with Boston sputtering. But, you know, I do think if the Sixers are somehow able to get home court in that series, like that is a pretty major deal. If yeah. if you start that series with two at home and you get a potential game seven on your home floor, I know Boston beat them at home recently and on the buzzer beater, all that. But that is an advantage. Like it just is an important factor in a series. I think and they need it. They'll need if, it. Right? If like, you go through the history of the NBA playoffs, I think road teams in game sevens, their record is awful. Like obviously there are examples of teams that, have pulled it out. It's certainly not a a situation where you just say, well, it's over and we just mm -hmm. write it off. But it makes a, a giant difference over the course of time if you're the home team in a game seven. So the fact that that's in play, I think, changes the calculus a little bit. I do think Boston stylistically is just a really tough matchup for them because they have multiple guys to throw at Harden. Tyrese has not played particularly well against them this season. I know Joel was awesome against Horford and Robert Williams in that game recently, but also like, I don't know that he can do that for seven games against them. I think that is a, a tough ask and you right. are going to need some of the other guys to step up. So yeah, I mean, I still think it's the tougher matchup for them out of the Boston Milwaukee duo, but you know, if Boston can't get their act together and as deep as they are, they've had some issues with their role players recently, most notably with, Grant Williams missing yes. a pair of free throws after saying on camera that he was going to make them both. Like that was well, and the fact there's video of it is so hysterical. Like, you know, I'm sure people say things all the time on the court that we don't catch, but the fact that they had videos of Grant Williams being like, I'm going to make both of these. I also think in that situation, once you miss the first, the pressure on the second must just be out of control, especially once you've said, I'm going to make both. And then you miss the first, but well, like how much do you buy in to the Boston collapse? Do you see this happening? Do you think it's real? I, I know from some, you know, us talking about it, maybe you're not as sure about it, but I'm curious how, where you stand on it. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So I tend to not, it's funny because the Sixers are playing nothing but meaningful games in March. It feels right. like I tend to think March is a month that you could almost throw out on the NBA calendar because this tends to be the time when effort drops for a lot of the teams that are sort of settling into their seeds mm -hmm. and all those teams that are in, you know, like bottom half of the playoff picture or play in type teams. They're the ones who are really gunning it up this time of year. Cause they need every single one of these games to 
either avoid the play in tournament or make the play in tournament in the first place. And it's part of why I know the play in tor- tournament didn't exist at this time. It was part of why when the Sixers in Ben's rookie year made that giant run to end the season, a big part of that is they were just a young team playing hard during a time when the real contenders were like, yeah, we don't give a shit about this part yeah. of the schedule. And they also played some soft games in there. They're playing teams that were tanking and what have you, but that's credit to them for winning those games. But that's what tends to happen is the real deal. Contenders take their foot off of the gas. Um, I do wonder if this year will be at least in the Eastern conference, if there will be some trends buck there because Milwaukee is just putting their foot on the gas and, other than that Sixers loss, I mean, they beat Orlando last night without, I believe, Giannis and Drew. Like, I don't think people understand how impressive of a win that Sixers game was the other night yeah. when you think about how they've been. So there is a little bit of this with Boston where you say, let's take a step back. They were clearly the best team in the league for the first, let's call it three months of the season. There was going to be some natural regression they probably shot over their heads early in the year, and that's coming down a little bit, but it'll stabilize you know, as they head toward the playoffs. But I think there are some other concerns. I mean, Robert Williams is seemingly never healthy. I think Horford has had some good games recently, obviously against Philadelphia at home. But I do wonder if he has the legs to play a deep playoff run because last year he's coming off essentially a sabbatical in Oklahoma City, didn't really play most of the year. So he's rested up for that finals run last season. Now having played most of the games this year, I don't know that you want to trust him or that you can trust him in, you know, second round conference finals, finals to have the legs to be yeah. able to to do all the Al Horford things they need him to, to tie things together on defense. And I know I made this point recently about coaching where every fan base hates their coach. There have been a lot of Celtics fans pissed off at Joe Mazzulla recently who like everyone in all Sixers fans like, oh, the Celtics bring in this guy, Mazzulla, like rookie head coach, and he's better than any Sixers coach they've ever had. (laughs) There have been a lot of complaints about lineups that he's playing, not calling timeouts, like the same sort of shit that people get on Doc Rivers for. And I do wonder if he's going to play the the lineups that are actually Boston's best lineups, like I think you saw in that Celtics Sixers game, Derek White is probably one of the guys who needs to play crunch time for them. And I don't know that Missoula is going to play him. So I do think there is an interesting push-pull where they want to play this big group or they want to leave, you know, Marcus Smart in a game because Marcus Smart has all this you know, history with them. I think he's been a big-time player in some big moments for them. But Derek White is probably one of their best five guys at this point, has been one of their best five guys. And if you're not playing him, it doesn't really matter right. if he's one of your best five guys. So there's some interesting stuff with the depth where sometimes depth ends up hurting you where you feel the need to play all these guys or you can't get that guy in the game. Like There are only so many people you can have on the floor at the same time. And I think Boston is sort of running into that problem this season. So... There's some of it that I just throw out as late season weirdness, but there are some concerns if you're looking at them big picture that I think you could say, yeah, they're maybe more vulnerable than I thought they were in November or December. 
Well, I remember doing a pod a month ago and saying, you know, and both of us were kind of saying it. There's no way they were going to get the one seed. But last night when Embiid was dominating Minnesota, I started to believe a little bit, right, especially coming off the missed free throws by Grant Williams, that they could do it. And I went through, and this is how sick I am. I did a game-by-game, <laughs> game-by-game prediction for the remaining schedules for all the Bucks, the Celtics, and the Sixers, right? And I went through... And I did this where I had the Sixers losing to the Celtics and Bucks, just to worst case scenario. So they didn't have to lose those games, right? The Celtics remaining schedule, I didn't look up like where it stands on terms of, you know, the, like, like where it ranks. Strength the of schedule. Yeah. yeah. But I thought the remaining schedule was pretty easy. I had them as 12 and three. I didn't do the last game of the season because who knows if that'll matter. But I think they could really pull off some wins over the next 15 games. So their schedule is easier. Whereas the Sixers, as we've discussed, not so much easier, right? But I think where this could really come down to, if you look at the schedule, from March 30th to April 4th, the Bucks, Celtics, and Sixers all play each other. And I think we could have a lot decided then. We could have the number one seed decided then. I think that's going to be massive for the MVP race, right? If Embiid keeps playing the way he's playing, if he does, if he keeps gaining, uh, getting momentum, if uh, Giannis keeps there, like those games could decide it. So when I look at it, do I think they're going to get the one seed? I think it's going to be really tough. You're going to need the Bucs and Celtics to lose games that they're supposed to win. But if the Sixers can beat the Bucs and the Celtics in those games, it's not that far-fetched. And it like for, for I think for a few weeks of this season, and I said it on the last pod too, it felt like they were locked in the three seed. It felt like Embiid was never going to win MVP. It really does feel like that's changed over the last however many days it feels like the win over Milwaukee really helped them. The Celtics collapsing. I think the discussion around the MVP, uh, you know, obviously has been a big story. I, I think that helps Embiid in some ways too. Like I, I really feel like they have momentum going their way. It's just going to come down to, can they, when they play the Bucks and Celtics in those two games, can they win those games? Yeah. I mean, look, you can look at basically every type of split for the Sixers. All of them say they're very good. They're 24 yeah. and 10 at home. They're 19 and 12 on the road, which their performance on the road was always kind of a, a sore subject over the last, you know, I'd say during the Ben era, it was always kind of an issue. And a lot of that was put on either Brett or Doc that they couldn't win on the road. When honestly, a lot of it was, you know, the maturity stuff we talked about with Joel that, they needed him to be a, a better, more mm -hmm. engaged professional night to night. So, I, I mean, I think that that says a lot that they're 19 and 12 on the road. Like we've talked a lot about, oh, they have all these road games and it's a tough schedule. But is it a tough schedule when you're better than, you know, most of these teams? Like, look, I still think these are tough games coming up that they have on the road, but they should beat Golden State on the road like they are just better than golden state is right now uh, straight up they, they are but i don't think that's a they should win that's a tough game they should beat golden state on the road golden state okay. is not good they're just not good this year i i, I don't know man they're, they're like not. if they're I'm not 34 and 32 right, right, they're right. two right. games over 500 right right but when they're you look good I think, I think they're like and i know this isn't the best way end all be all they're like fifth or something like that in finals odds i still think they're not a team that you look at right, because people don't write them off because of steph but like yeah well that we're just saying this season and the regular season they're not a very good team like they're, the sixers are a better team i agree with you on that 
But that's I, what I'm saying. Yeah. You had that's a game you should win. If you don't beat Phoenix on the second half of the back-to-back there, that's understandable. But if you're fully healthy in that Golden State game, you should win it. They should absolutely beat Chicago in the two games they have against them at the yep, end of March. They have a home and away. They have an away game against the Pacers, an away game against Charlotte. I mean, look Actually, at all these. These are all ESPN. winnable yeah. games. All winnable games. So I agree. Look, I get that there are some tough back-to-backs. I get that they'll be on the road for long periods of time. There's going to be mental let-up. And honestly, by the time they get to Milwaukee, Boston in early April, there might be incentive to tank games from one of any of those three teams to Good try point. to game the matchups. I don't think that's how the Sixers should go about it. I think they should be playing this stretch that they should be trying to build some momentum going into the playoffs and saying, we're going to play our best basketball. We're not going to run scared of anybody. And we're going to push for as high a seed as we can. Obviously with the caveat, don't overdo it with minutes. And you know, if, if guys have need to rest for injury related reasons, fine. But my point is, I think people have looked at it the wrong way. And I I've, I made this point on the pod previously. I think you could just as easily say, because they're playing all these tough games and good opponents, this is going to you know sharpen them for the playoff run, that this is a good thing because it doesn't allow them to rest on their laurels. That, yeah. You know, Cleveland could catch them in three. Like if they screwed around and they lost a bunch of games and Cleveland plays well, Cleveland has had, or at least one point had the easiest remaining schedule. So that is part of it too. Like they don't have the luxury to say, we're going to sit back and just let the chips fall where they may, because then you end up, you're in a four or five. So you have a tougher first round. Then you're certainly on the road against whoever the number one seed ends up being. Mm -hmm. So look, I get it. The schedule's tough. They're going to lose some of these games. They're not going to finish the year on a 16 or 17 game win streak, whatever it is at this point. But I think they're, they should win at least 75% of these games. That's a, yeah. that's all I'm saying. And when I went through and did it, I can pull it up right here when I did the win-loss. So our producer, James, put in the, the thing, the Warriors are 27 and 7 at home. Again, I um, agree that that should be a, that should be at least their eighth loss when the Sixers play. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. Wow. Well, I can't wait for that game. But you are like basically guaranteeing a win here. So I had them losing. I had them splitting with Chicago. I agree that they should win both of those games, but who knows? Uh, I had them losing one to Chicago, losing to Golden State, losing to Phoenix, losing both to Milwaukee and Boston. But I only had them with five losses the rest of the way. And to your point, like they do go on a stretch. Where they can really they can really stack some wins up. Now well, when you look this is the stretch right now, other than Cleveland, the next one, two, three, like seven or eight games are all they if they went seven and one or eight and oh, to your point, I think playing Chicago back to back, that a little those are always funky. Like those two games right. steer like mini series pretty much always favor a, a one-one split. It's just hard to beat a team twice in a row. Mm -hmm in the regular season. So I, I would agree they probably lose one of them, but Portland, Washington, Cleveland, Charlotte, Indiana, before that Cleveland is the only game that they have any excuse to lose every single that's one of the rest of Cleveland on prime time. So I think that's a difficult game, but they're better than the Cavs. Like to your point about the Warriors, I think that Warriors is a tougher game than the Cavs just because I think going across the country playing it, I just think that's tougher, but they are better than the Cavs. Like they should, they should win that game. But that's what I mean. Like, and I so to tie this all back to 
taking Joel's greatness for granted or not yeah. talking about it. Or I think you see that in how people discuss or think about this team. Like by and large, they have taken care of business this year. I believe they said on the halftime show on TNT last night that the Sixers record when they have a lead at halftime, you would think the way people talk about blown leads with this team, <laughs> that they lose all kinds of games. I think they said there's something like 26 and three when they're leading at halftime or something like that. So this is a team that not only is capable of the big comebacks, like we saw in the Milwaukee game, they put games away. I know it doesn't always look pretty. I know that sometimes you want to rip your hair out based on rotations from doc and, and lackadaisical effort in the third quarter or whatever it is. But by and large, this team takes care of business they win games at home. They win games yep. on the road. They win when Joel plays well. They win when Joel has some struggles. They win when James struggles. They win when every variation of a basketball game they can play, they win. Like yep. that, that's bottom line. Unless they play the Celtics, obviously. Yeah, well, I was gonna say that's the only <laughs> the only variation of a game they can win. But you're right. I mean, it, I feel like a few things have happened with this team over the last few weeks. One, whenever Harden shoots, I expect it to go in. I've gone back to thinking whenever Maxi shoots, it's going to go in. And I always expect them to win. I always do. To your point, they win all types of games. It's like, a disappointment when they don't win because yeah, they it, should win more often than not. It Well, and it's surprising when they don't win. Again, against besides the Celtics, it is surprising when this team doesn't win. And that's why, you know, we were uh, debating this at the station. You know, uh, should we really believe in the team, right? And I think sometimes a lot of the belief in the team the last few years has been supported by the rest of the conference not being that great. Like last year, Miami was not a great team that they went up against in the second round. They were a good team, but it, you know, they didn't have like a star or anything like that. I think you could look at past Sixers teams and talk yourself into it without, but also acknowledging there were major flaws. This team doesn't have those flaws, right? Like there's, there's defensive lapses sometimes, like there's effort issues sometimes. But in terms of just the fact of why, like everyone asks themselves, why should you believe in the Sixers? Because this is the best Sixers team we've seen in a really, really long time. In a really long time. They just, they have all the components. So, so when you talk about how they win all these different games, they can win it because they're just flat out more talented than almost every other team that steps on the court. I mean, Dallas, I know they lost, but I think they have a better roster than Dallas does. Like things happen, but ultimately what saves this team is just the immense amount of talent. I mean, I was looking at 538 uh, yesterday and look, I know Raptor and all that. It's not the most popular stat, especially among Sixers fans. But it had Harden as the top five player in the NBA. And you know, we can debate that. But the fact that it's even discussed is just, I mean, they were the only team. Embiid and Harden, two of the top five players in the NBA. Needless to say, the only team in the league that has that. Like the elite talent that this team has is something we have not seen in a really long time on this on this team. So I know it feels weird to use the Sacramento Kings as a reference point for how good they've been going. Yeah. But I want people to understand something as it stands right now, the Sacramento Kings are the number two team in the West. The Sixers in the two games they played against them game at in Philadelphia, they beat them so badly that the second half was basically not a basketball game anymore. And on the road to end a long road trip, the their longest undefeated road trip in franchise history, the Sixers sat Joel Embiid and James Harden and still beat them. The number yeah. two team in the West. Like, 
I, I know it's it's the Kings and whatever, like all the historical baggage with them. Like people don't take them seriously as a playoff threat and all that. I mean, they've been for most of the year the single best offensive team in the league. And the Sixers made them look like a CYO team in the, yeah. the home meeting and then beat them without their two best players. So that to me is a, a great example of the gap between this year's Sixers teams and teams that we've seen in the past. Like, right, there's always an excuse in the past. Oh, it's a back-to-back. Oh, they're missing this guy. Oh, poor shooting night for Joel. James doesn't have it. This is a tough matchup. This season, I am in the mindset of, and I think other people should be in the mindset of, maybe this is why they're miserable and I'm more, <laughs> no, this is this is, this is is good. Like, it's good to have these right. problems. But I go into all these games thinking they can win this game. And I go into most of them based on who the competition is thinking they should win this game. And that is like, I get that the the burden of expectations is that when you do lose as a team, that there's more criticism, that people are more disappointed to you, in you. But I think also you look at the flip side of that and say, that's a great thing. You want that pressure. You want people thinking this team has a chance to beat absolutely anybody. They can go into a seven game series and say, we might have the best player in the series and we might even have the second best player, at least the set the, two of the three best players yeah, in two series. of the three best players in every series they play in every and we've single spent, series they play. we've also spent most of this podcast without really talking about tyrese maxi maxi yeah. over the last you know week week and a half or so is ascending back toward that place we saw him in end of last year start of this year where he's been awesome like is back in that that comfort zone as a uh a guy in the starting lineup he also led a huge run to open the fourth quarter as a, uh, as the leader of the bench unit, which those Mm -hmm. are lineups that historically hit, he has struggled to carry on his own. So you put all of it together and you say, this is a real contender. Like, I don't know how much more evidence people need to see. Uh, To your point earlier, I agree that like if the Sixers were in the Western conference, I would say they're the outright favorite to win the West. Like that's how much better I think, the top three teams in the East are than anybody in the West. I think their performance against the Western conference shows that I think the overall body of work shows that I think the they'd be the favorite is, to win the title if they were in the West, because their path there would be so they, I mean that you have, it'd be a fair argument to say, yeah. you know, they would have to beat Phoenix. I think is the the sleeping giant now with yeah. Duran and if they, they get all that together, but having to put it together at the deadline is really tough. And, Look, I I think the perception of this team does not match the reality locally. I think nationally people are starting to to come onto it, but I like for example, I was listening to the Bill Simmons podcast the other day. Mm. I don't listen to him all the time, but when he <laughs> when there are big Sixers like games, to couch that like we all grow well, look, up like loving Bill, oh, Bill I, Simmons. Yeah, and now I it's grew- like it's like well, just to be clear, I don't often listen. <laughs> no, I'm saying like I listen to him infrequently. Is what I'd say. I yeah. grew up reading everything he wrote and all that, but yeah, he he just goes way off the handle sometimes. Oh, he but he was talking about the the Bucks game. It's like oh, the Sixers really needed this one, and I know we called it a must win game and all that. It's like. Bro, they've beaten a lot of the best teams in the league this year. So, uh, yeah, but I think we're, they, we're still treating every individual game as like the stakes are super high. It's like, dude, they they keep beating teams. I, I don't know what more they need to do. 
So I other than I, beat Boston again, I have to keep Boston. saying this. other than beat Boston. But you know, I do think the Milwaukee game was was really big, and I think to be let's be real, like we're doing this pod, we're almost you know forty five minutes an hour in, right? Outside of the debacle with my package, <laughs> pause. But like <laughs> outside of like that whole thing, right? Like we've pretty much just been gushing about this team the entire time. Like th- they've. I think that's why those big wins matter. Like that's why that game in Milwaukee matters because to your point, you're right. Me and you, and obviously you cover the team, but we watch every game, right? We follow this team um, very closely. The casual fans, and I don't mean this as an insult, like, you know, you don't watch every minute of every game, right? So ultimately I think that's why the Milwaukee game matters because people are tuning in and out in terms of like when to believe and when to not. And that's why when they lose to Boston, right? It feels like a bigger deal because more people are watching the game. And then when they beat Milwaukee, now everyone's loving the team because everyone's watching that game and everybody sees them beat, you know, a a big opponent. So ultimately to your point, you are right that this team through however many games they've played, I don't know, 65, whatever it is, 70, like this team has shown enough to believe in them. They just flat out have, they flat out have, but I do think some of the hesitation sometimes comes from, the, the, really just Boston. Like, really, that's it. I think that's the only hesitation is that the unfortunate reality, it's like the Eagles last year. The Eagles were an amazing team. They were probably the best team in the league, blah, 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 whatever. They ran into the Chiefs. Like, sometimes in sports, you just can't help it. And that's the the big giant kind of waiting for for the Sixers is, is the Celtics in the second round. So I'm going to ask you a hypothetical. If Let's oh, say, and we're going to include the end of the season matchup too. If the Sixers had split the season series with Boston, are they viewed as like the overwhelming title favorite or even just like the outright title favorite? You're if, saying if, if instead if of they had won, yeah, okay. if they had won one of the games against Boston, like let's say they win the game the other night that was a coin flip game. Right. And then they win this matchup at the end of the season. Would they be viewed as the outright favorite to win the title or win the East? Let's say. Okay. So. Had they won the last two games against Boston, right? Like, so to your point about splitting, if they would have beaten Boston the first two and then lost that coin flip game, which they did, and then they lose the next one, then I think it's still Boston. But while I think that the whole season series matters, especially when you're 0-3 against a team, if if they can win that final Boston game and had they won that coin flip game, then you can look and go, all right, they were 2-2, two and two, but they won the last two games against them. So the most recent times these teams have played – they will have won. So yeah, I think if they would have split the season series with Boston, had they gone two and two, I would probably be on this pod saying, I think they're going to the NBA finals. So yeah, I I, I would agree probably. But but That's also a, like, like but results matter. I, I know you're gonna of say course it, of, yeah, I'm not yeah, saying yeah. that we should like I don't think they should be viewed as a, the Eastern Conference favorite. I, I I agree with you that all you still have to win the games, like right. we don't exist on paper or in hypotheticals and all this stuff. And again. Joel's got to do it in the playoffs. James has to do it in the playoffs. Maybe most importantly, Doc's got to do it in the playoffs with well, whatever yeah. he's got most cooking up with the, the rotations. Yeah, most importantly to the fans. But I, but I think that to me is that shows how much these individual games are maybe overanalyzed or over scrutinized. Last year's a, a decent example of the opposite where they struggled against the Raptors in the regular season. And there was all this panic, like, oh, my God, they, they got to play this tough Toronto team. Right. They're smart media members I respect who are, like, 
picking the Raptors. I know out, it was right? insane. It was insane. And the whole th- the thing I said every single time is that Toronto cannot score. They cannot yeah. score, and they yep. did not score when it mattered. And the Sixers should have swept that series. Like the fact that it ended up going six games, and that has all the knock-on effects with the injury for Joel and all that. That was terrible. But look, don't overthink it. They're very good. They might not win the title, but they're. I feel like this is the theme of every podcast now. So maybe we should uh, transition into the Jokic and Bead. That's actually stuff. where I was going to go. So I have, we, you know, I have an MVP take that I, I feel pretty strongly on. And then we'll let the conversation go over. Well. I think the MVP deserves to come from the Eastern Conference. It is the better conference. The teams are better. I think the Nuggets are very good. And so... You know, there's been a lot of talk this week, right, about like moving goalposts and bias and all that stuff. And we'll get into it. I, I think that in terms of the moving goalposts, I can't speak for other media members moving the goalposts. I, to me, always feel like team results really matter when it comes to MVP, flat out. I That's agree. Why last year, I did not think Jokic deserved it because his team finished six, right? This year, while I think Joel Embiid is having a better year than Jokic, he is having a better year. I think it matters that Jokic is the number one seed in the in the West, right? In ter- I mean, just on a basic level, if you said, Elliot, who won MVP this year? And I said, it was a player on the number one team in the West that averaged almost a triple-double. Just on the surface, there's no issue with that. Like, that's not, you know, talking about some guy on a six seed that averaged 24 points winning it. He's the number one seed on the Western Conference. But I also think you have to look and go, the Eastern Conference is better than the Western Conference. To your point, if the Sixers were in the West, they would be the one seed, in my opinion. The Nuggets are good, but I think the Sixers would be the one seed. And Embiid is having, I don't do, I, I, I think like not just a better year than Jokic, I think he's having a considerably better year. Jokic is not scoring much, right? I think he averages like 24 points a game. Uh, I have a stat that I tweeted yesterday, which blew my mind. So, Embiid's usage rate on offense is 37%. Jokic's is 27%. And I, I understand, you know, he's touching the ball less and putting up good numbers, all these things. It's not a perfect stat. But this perception that Jokic is like the like running their whole offense and, you know, like it all runs through him. Embiid touches him. Embiid has the ball way more. So I, I well, just. Some of that is that Joel holds the ball more. <laughs> like, right? that's, that is a real thing. Like, Jokic is getting all these assists because ball comes to him and then it's quickly out of his hands. Whereas Joel gets the ball at the elbow and he's, you know, running the clock down or he's feeling a guy out. And I'm not saying neither strat or neither style is better or worse. There are two different ways to attack the same problem. It's what's the best way to score to your point. I think with Joel, the best way to score is for him to go and try to hunt his own shot. Whereas with Jokic, it's, He's an insane passer, and so he leverages that all throughout the game. Yeah, I just think at the end of the day, if I had to have one player on one possession at the end of the game, everybody would pick Embiid. He's a better scorer. He had 10 assists against the Mavericks. I know he has turnover problems, and he's not the passer that Jokic is, but it's not like he's a bad passer. I mean, he can certainly move the ball, right? I mean, again, 10 assists against the Mavericks. So when I look at the MVP thing, my ultimate thing I would fall down on is I think the Eastern Conference player deserves it. And frankly, I would be okay just giving it to Giannis or Embiid. If, if Embiid, if the Sixers finish the one seed in the East, Embiid should get the MVP. Point blank stop, flat out. If the Sixers are the one seed in the East, 
Embiid should get it. I think if if the uh, Giannis well, I don't think that's going to happen. So. <laughs> so, well, okay. Well, all right. Let me ask you. What do you? Th- where are you at with the MVP thing? And where do you? What do you think Embiid's chances of winning it are? Well, are you asking me about MVP in general or MVP with this recent discussion about like well, wherever you want to take it? Yeah, I mean, just like where are you at with MVP stuff? Okay, so I will say I think it's really bizarre that this is the season that we're talking about. You know, the racial component of the race when again, Jokic is averaging a triple double, scoring twenty four points a game on the best team in the West. Right? They're forty six right. and nineteen. I last year you want to have some kind of debate or discussion about that. I think that's totally fair. I do think there are components like the, the, the idea of voter fatigue or somebody has got to prove something in the playoffs to be able to keep winning, you know, all NBA first team MVP awards, all that. Like I do think I, I, I get that side of it. I think this year to make the argument though, when Jokic is absolutely losing his mind on the best team in the West is, a little disingenuous. He's I think a it's way more case this year. He's a way better case yeah, this year. I think it's just complaints catching up from previous seasons. And I do think part of it too is like there are a lot of people, myself included, who think defense is undervalued in terms of if you're considering a body of work for NBA MVP two-way case. And Jokic has gotten taken off the floor in the playoffs because right. he he can't defend in, in crunch time situations. Like you wouldn't say that about any other MVP candidate. And I think that's some, for some reason ignored with him, which is just a bizarre thing. Um, I think Jokic is going to win. And I think if he doesn't win, Giannis is going to win. Like I I do think to the discussion earlier about Joel's greatness and, and it being taken for granted, he would have to play at such an impossibly high level down the stretch to, to kind of beat this perception that, oh, well, the Bucks had a, a 16 game winning streak. I know Jokic has the triple double. Like what is Joel's primary thing that you say? Like you can say all these things like the Bucks are probably going to be the number one seed. They had a 16 game winning streak. They survived this long stretch without Middleton. All those are like planks in the case that if you're, if you're on a sports debate show, you're in a barber shop, you're at a bar with your friends you can just make the case by saying like one of several things with Jokic, it's triple double number one seed. Yeah. What do you say for Joel? He's tied for tied for the scoring lead right now. So you could say leading scorer on what the second or third best team in the conference. Well, and that gets a little tougher to say that's, that should be the guy who's the MVP. I'm not saying he doesn't deserve it. And like, again, because I value defense and care about it more and stuff like this. Personally, I would give him a bump over Jokic. But I I think if you're asking me to look at what do the voters consider or what are the very basic baseline arguments, that's when it gets much tougher. Because when it is close, the default in someone's mind is what's the simple, most simplest, most concise argument I can make. It's why Westbrook as a lower seed one because he averaged triple double. It was a historic event, all that. It always comes down to, because look, we're talking about international media, beat writers all over the place, TV people, national reporters, and not all these people. And I would say very few of these people are watching a, a high volume of games for all the MVP candidates throughout the year. So it's, what is your case in the simplest terms? And I, I think 
Joel's going to struggle to put together one that's like the the most compelling case at the end of the day. It's stupid, but that's what it is. So I don't I I think that's actually a really good point. I think that it's in a in a layman's term, it's almost like who has the best elevator pitch to win? Like who in 15 yes. seconds can say, right? So I think the frustration is last year, the elevator pitch for Jokic, you would have had to been going to like the top of the Empire State Building to understand it. It would have been, you know, <laughs> there's this and there's this and that blah blah blah, right? It this was year, basically just that his team was all injured and he was still really good. Right. But Joel had a better version of that case, I thought. So I didn't but, really but, understand that. But I think this year, Embiid's elevator pitch is actually, you know, to your point, it Jokic's is simple. Number one seed averaging a triple double. Boom. Right. Four seconds. I think Embiid's is best player in the NBA and on, on, on a better team. Like the Sixers are better than the Nuggets. And again, as a certified and beat hater at the beginning of the year, I think he's probably been the best player in the NBA this year. He's been better than Jokic. We could argue him versus Giannis. Luke has been great. All these things. Embiid has been the best player on the best level of team. Like the Sixers, uh, Bucks and Celtics are a level above the, uh, the Mavericks. So if you want to put Luke in the conversation, his team's not as good. So I think for Embiid, his MVP case is the best player on arguably the best team, because we agree Tatum's not really in it. So I think that his, his, uh, his argument is, is to your point, it requires a little more nuance, but if you really hammer it down, his case is he's been the best player on the best team. Yeah. I just, the, the best team label is just one that you have to stretch it so much that it's like, at that point, I, I just don't think that's holding up. Like, again, if they were to somehow pull the number one seed out of nowhere, Milwaukee falters and they go on a long win streak to end the year. And especially like that would also coincide with Joel is playing Jokic and Giannis down the stretch. He beats both of them and they go on a big run to end the year. I absolutely could see a reality where voters say, okay, he has won all these matchups against the other guys that he's competing with. His team is awesome. He's awesome. And has been in like this close to winning. Well, not that close based on the votes, but close in the sense that he's finished second in back-to-back years, but all that stuff combined. And you say, okay, that that's the case. Like he had, he dominated the head to head matchups. Team was great. Best ever season leading scorer in the NBA. That's all well and good. I just think when we get to the end of the road, the other guys are going to have the better elevator pitches, as you said, and that's probably going to be enough to to get them the award. Whether it's yeah, it looks like it'll be Jokic. I do think that there's a a maybe like thirty percent, let's thirty to forty percent chance Giannis wins it at this point, depending on how end of the season shakes out. But it'll be interesting. Well, I'll say this: having Kendrick Perkins bang the drum hard for Embiid. Kendrick Perkins is one of the top—I don't know—five most vocal NBA voices right now, right? Just in terms of what he says, gets talked about a lot. Having Embiid, having him be an Embiid guy, I think is really going to help Embiid. And the Jokic thing—the the last thing I'll say, I guess, about this MVP thing that's been discussed this week—is obviously the the racial component to it, right? Of Kendrick Perkins pointing out that the I think it was only back-to-back MVPs over the last so many years have all been, or only three times, right? Like, I'm a 35-year-old white male. I can't sit here and speak about racial racial bias the way Kendrick Perkins can. It's just the reality of of where I am at, right? Yeah. So I, I cannot speak to if I think it's racial bias, if it's not. 
I, what I think sometimes is happening with Jokic, and I think you see this in other sports too, is once a player, and actually, so James Harden made this point um, a few years ago saying that a lot of these awards are decided in the first few months because people get their narrative and then they just stick with it and it's impossible to remove it. I think too, when Jokic has won two straight MVPs, he is automatically going to be in that conversation, right? And then when you put in the uh, the um, the season he's having and you put in, the, the, like, he's going to be part of it, right? But I think what you said is also true. And this is frankly what frustrated me with Brandon Graham not winning comeback player of the year, but that's a whole different Oh, thing. that was ridiculous. Yeah. That was but ridiculous. People, I think there's this perception that all the voters out there are doing all this research and really, like, hammering home all these things. And we like to think that that's the case. But it's why later in his career, Jason Peters made Pro Bowls, right? It's why later in careers, you see players who were great players just get it. And Jokic is clearly not in the backstage of his career. But I think with Jokic, it's just laziness to a certain point, too, in terms of they've decided he's a great player, like flat out. They've decided early in the season that he is going that he is probably going to win this award. And now the ball is rolling so fast and gaining steam that it's going to be tough. But I really do think over this last week, things have shifted a little. I just like my perception of where it's at. I feel like there is going to be a not small portion of people in the media and of a vocal fan base saying Jokic cannot win the third straight MVP. And so, and I don't think he should, but I do think the public sentiment and I think amongst media members, this discussion over the last week is going to really force them. I think at this point, if you vote for Jokic MVP, you have to be ready to defend that take to the death. Like you have to really believe it. Whereas I think a week ago and props to Kendrick Perkins for making this a discussion you could have probably just done it and it would have been, well, everyone thinks that. So it is what it is. I think the discussion of the last week has forced people to really have to believe it if they're going to vote for Jokic. And I do think that ends up helping Embiid. So on the, the subject of due diligence, I think there's a good chance that 50% of MVP voters just listen to what Zach Lowe is saying. Yeah, you said into, that. I agree. Like I, I, it's an oversimplification and I don't mean to demean any of my colleagues, but like, I, I do think there is a level of with basketball, it's so hard to have a firm understanding of the entire league that it's borderline impossible when there are games every single night all going at the same time that like the man hours you need to dedicate to have a mastery of one team, let alone a mastery of yeah. every team and then be able to make a you know, a case for MVP or all NBA or whatever it is, the bar is really high. Um, on the, the the bias front, I do think that it has probably gone too far in the in the extent that Jokic is an awesome basketball player, right? Like it, this isn't some guy who's being put on a platform that is not producing or has not had genuine cases to win the awards. But I tweeted this yesterday. I think the way you see bias seep into how he's covered or, you know, how his perception is, is framed is, you know, he's had moments where he's been a total hothead, gotten thrown out in multiple playoff yeah. games. He got into an incident with Markeith Morris last year where people don't like Markeith Morris is part of it, but Markeith Morris gave him a little cheap shot. And then Jokic came way over the top mm -hmm. and cheap shot at him and knocked him out of the, he was hurt for months at whiplash from what happened. And I think that people probably would discuss those things 
a lot differently if he's not this goofy looking white dude, right? Yeah. If you look at how people talk about his brothers, his big Serbian brothers, they talk about it like it's this really cute thing that there are these like sideline enforcers, right? Where if you look at how people talk about, for example, the crew that have been around Ja Morant, there is like yep. a big, I know that Ja has, I'm not defending what Ja has done with waving guns around and the behavior they've done. But part of the reason that there's an extreme reaction to Ja and what Ja's inner circle have done at games, after games, before games, not connected to the games, is because he's black and because his friends and his his acquaintances are black and they're talked about differently than the goofy Jokic and his Serbian brothers. Like, oh, right. you don't want to mess with them. Where yeah, so that's point. that's viewed as like a, a cute story for Jokic, whereas it's like these people around Ja are awful and they gotta get and so it does color the perception in ways like that. There's another example that I saw recently where there was a Nuggets writer who I'm not going to name, but there is a Nuggets writer who essentially tweeted something to the effect of um, the Nuggets play the purest, most team-centric basketball in the league. And that term purest Mm -hmm. really dug at me. Like the idea that because Jokic is a a playmaker first, that the the Nuggets are somehow a a purer team just reeks of like, it's a white guy doing this. Whereas like, James Harden been leading the league in assists for most of the year and has completely transformed his game to be a sidekick to Joel. And by the way, basketball at the end of the day is about getting buckets, is about scoring. Joel has been the single best bucket getter in the entire league this year. So if you want to argue that the Sixers are the purest basketball team in the league, you could certainly make that case, and I will never do that because I don't, I don't believe in the concept of one team being this is a pure basketball team. You do whatever it takes to be the best team that you can be. So I think that's the stuff where you see like this is framed a different way because it's a white guy who is this great player. And again, that doesn't take away Jokic has nothing to do with this, right? Jokic is an awesome player who doesn't get involved in any of this shit. Like he's not writing these stories, right. going on TV or voting for himself for MVP or contributing to this discussion in any way. But I think where you see it in MVP is not in the voting, but it's the people who say, oh, Jokic, he's, he doesn't care about the award. And they paint Joel by comparison as the selfish, like look at him campaigning for the trophy. Like he really wants this. Like, And as I've said, on this podcast before, I think it's total bullshit that Joel, because he's prideful in his craft and wants the the top honor that any player can get in the league and that being viewed as some negative or some knock against him is yep. the dumbest thing that I have ever seen happen in my life. I, it, Jokic not really caring about the MVP. It's not good or bad. It's It's neutral. It's fine. He can handle it how he wants. The fact that Joel gets demerited for caring about wanting to win something is stupid. And he actually has changed how he talks about it this year. I believe not because that's actually how he feels, but because he knows that people view it as it's a perception issue. So I a hundred percent. No, well, first of all, I think that was 
Beautifully said by you, the whole thing. Um, I 100% agree with you on the award thing. I've always said I think it's silly to say players shouldn't care about awards. Of course they should care about awards, right? It's what they work for. It's just silly. If you to care about it. it over winning and it takes precedent over winning, that's one thing. The Sixers are really good and he cares yeah, they about win it. a ton of games. Yeah. Great. I, I The last thing I'll say, because we actually do have to wrap this up. We've always, of course, gone longer than we thought, <laughs> is... With the, with the whole bias thing, right? Like I've been debating this issue a lot with my friends over the past few days. And there's part of me that doesn't want to do like the thing where it's like, well, anyone that votes for Jokic is racist, right? Like I just, I, I like to think that that's not the case, blah, blah, blah. And we're the two oh. white guys pod, of course. Well, so exactly. The irony is just tripping here. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. We have to be, we have to acknowledge the fact that, well, you know, we're both 35 year old white males, right? But, but I also think that, when certain like when JJ Reddick comes out and is like saying, you know, that's not the case, blah, blah, blah. I think we also have to be honest and say there is bias seeped into every single aspect of life, right? It's just a reality of it. And the other reality, unfortunate reality, is there is racial bias involved in so many things. So I think it can be a somewhat of a middle ground where, to your point, Jokic is a great player. He has an MVP case. But I also think it can be intentionally ignorant to ignore the reality of what is happening, which is there is racial bias involved. Now, does that mean he's going to win the award because he is white? I can't answer that question because I don't know the voters. Like, I can't do all that. But I think that you are right, and you put it perfectly when you say that there is bias. Like, the way he's discussed all these things, I think there's a lot of truth to what you said, too. So it's, and I really do think- Well, like, to that point, Elliot, who's the last person to win three straight MVPs? Well, I know Giannis got two and didn't get the third. I, I, I honestly don't. I should know this off the top of my head. Oh, Larry it's Bird. Larry Bird. James. Yeah. All right. James. It's Larry James Bird. Told me I cheated. Yeah. So, yeah. so like, you know, how many great, like all time Pantheon level players have been MVP caliber guys for long stretches of time, whether it's Michael Jordan, LeBron. I mean, Kobe only won one MVP during his career. There are lots of guys that you could say, this guy's probably the best player in the league for, I mean, in LeBron's case, he could have been the MVP for like 10 straight yeah. years, probably. Right. And yeah. And Giannis's case, he could have easily won three straight MVPs recently, if not for Jokic beating him out to his first of the, what looks like it'll be three awards. So look again, I think JJ has good intentions. And I think JJ is a smart guy in general. I think he went way too far in, in making the claim, as you said, that, there's no bias. Like there's no way of knowing that. Like, I can't say that there are plenty, most of all the voters that I know are not, they're not checking the the box for Jokic because he's a white dude. Right. But conscious and unconscious bias are both bias. Just because yeah. one is more out in the open and we think about it more, does not mean the other one doesn't exist. So you know, we'll perfect. see. Maybe Giannis or Joel will win the MVP, and none of this will yeah. matter. Yeah. Well, I do think it's interesting. It's being discussed as he's already won it, you know? And so we'll see yeah. if he does. Like, he might not win it. And then, you know, the whole thing about him winning I think he's going to win it. I, I, I just think that. But I'm telling you, man, I really think this last week, I really think Giannis and Bede have made strides in chipping into it. But we will see. So there's no easy transition out of this conversation in terms of moving <laughs> on. But uh, the last thing I'll say is, so the schedule coming up, they have Portland on Friday. They have, who, what's that? Are they back-to-back -back again? No, they play Friday, Sunday. Okay, Friday, Sunday. So maybe we'll come back with a Saturday pod, uh, potentially, um, to talk about. You know, again, to your point, like, 
these are games that if, if you have to win these games so that when you play Milwaukee and Boston, they're going to be huge games regardless, but you don't go into it with like a do or die situation, or at least win these games so that those games matter uh, at the end of the month. So as I started the pod with, thank you to everybody that's been listening. Shout out to everyone that's using the Odyssey app and special shout out to people that have taken time to leave the five-star reviews. It really helps the pod grow, makes my day. I know deep down it makes Kyle's day too when he reads them. So it is nice to, to, to wake up and see those. So thank you to everybody for listening today. Uh, we will be back later in the week, hopefully discussing another Sixers win. And uh, Kyle, I'll talk to you next time. Talk to you guys soon.